Oh, it's it's you. Oh, thank you for uh, thank you for tuning into the third episode of Music Happy Hour, the happiest music podcast around. <laughs> uh, you got a pretty good, pretty good episode lined up today. Sam will tell you all about that. Thanks for that intro, Gannon. That was something. Um, well, we'll we start off. We got our album discussion. We're talking about um. Two Kanye West albums this this episode. We're talking about Kids See Ghosts and Jesus is King, the classic gospel hit from Kanye of, 29, <laughs> of course. 2019. Of course. Then we're also, um, we've got our special guest for today is Dr. Trent Jacobs. Really, really interesting conversation. He's a great guy. And then we also have the iconic, the classic, the thing that everybody listens to the podcast for, the movie minute from Gannon Key. Woo! All right, sweet. So let's jump uh, right into Jesus is King. So obviously, this is kind of Kanye's way of saying, "I love Jesus. I'm different now. You know, I'm Christian." Oh um, my gosh! <laughs> you no, know, you know, it's like it's it's his way and how he tried to vocalize it. You know, so he said, "I'm dropping a gospel album," but I mean, as Fantano says, right? not a good rap album not a good gospel album it's just mediocre at both it makes it bad you know so um that's that's his opinion um and we'll dig in a little bit deeper um <laughs> none other than than kenneth g or kenny g was featured on this album so it instant makes sense. it pretty sick in my eyes you boys let loose what what do you think okay so i kind of have a Love hate relationship with Jesus King. One, I wouldn't say love hate. Yeah, I, for some reason, I don't believe the. T- Sorry, what did you say? Did you say ten out of ten? I, I I jokingly used to say that earlier. Okay. 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 Now I will. So I don't know. This album, I, I kind of hate it, and I also kind of kind of respect it in a way. I, I think the uh, the gospel elements, I, I like them. They're kind of well done. It's like. It's certainly not bad listening, but a lot of the albums kind of kind of frustrates me because I just I hate its lack of subtlety when approaching the whole gospel gospel and like God approach because like this has this isn't like a new thing for Kanye like his like, first big single off of his first album was called Jesus Walks and it was all about like his religion and he like touches on his religion throughout his like entire career, but he went I think so so specific with this out with this album and he, it's like. I don't, I don't think it's really subtle in the way it approaches it. Cause like every single song I think can be boiled down to like the, the same sort of, same sort of message and, and nothing, there's, there's not really a, a message. I think that's hope that's like attempted further than I think Kanye loves, loves God. He loves Jesus. Kanye yeah, so just doesn't like it cause he's atheist. <laughs> Perhaps. Hey, this is music happy hour, not religion happy yeah. hour. Sam, what's your we'll take bring on the prejudice album? into the Sam. Okay. Uh, it's uh, it's not it's not great it's just sort of like fine either i do like i like the kenny g part and i like um salah i think that's the one i like salah yeah that that one's that one's probably my favorite and it's the best one on the album i i i'd agree it's just like not i don't know it's not a great album overall i also think because like the the album we're gonna talk about next is kids see ghosts but i'm not i'm not getting that yet but I think this album's 27 minutes, and I feel like I'm gonna spoil my thoughts on Kitsy Ghost, but it's saying like that's 23 minutes, and I think what's packed into that runtime 
it packs in like I think so much more stuff than it's packed into the twenty-seven month time of this. I think it's so like it gets so redundant and like not subtle that it just kind of frustrates me. And I also wanted to go in. I when I was listening to reading the lyrics, I wrote down some of my favorite, least favorite, quote unquote bars he drops in this. And okay, Gannon, could I quick could I quick touch on my my opinion? Oh yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Quick? Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no um so yeah again i i it's, it's, it's a mediocre album is the truth um uh obviously uh salah or Sella is um the best track on this album it's not even close um i like use this gospel and god is there's a couple that are like you know they're good tracks but like they're not they're not amazing tracks the one thing i thought this album was really missing is like kanye had a really easy album to create like a full story and connecting story throughout the whole thing uh-huh. But he just doesn't connect to any of the songs, and it it just becomes really choppy, which I think kind of leads to your point about it just doesn't pack in as much substance. Yeah, I think I think that's what kind of leads to your point there. And then, well, what I was gonna say about I think a lot of the lines are kind of stupid and very simplistic. Like just to <laughs> boil it down to a couple of them, everybody wanted Yandi, then Jesus Christ did the laundry. Dude, that's fire. Yeah, you say that so much. <laughs> I know because it's so funny to say, but it's so it's stu- it, it's kind of. I just it's think it's. Fire. I don't know. And then but the, close. But here, Gannon, Gannon, let's let's just talk about like that real quick. Is like that line's so simple, and it, I, I like is that Kanye's goal though, right? Does he just want a simple lyric that people can say, you know, like what what's he actually meaning, you know? Because you have your albums like the Glow Part Two, right? That's just super in depth, and you have to listen. But some of Kanye's music, you're not necessarily going to – you're going to not sit in your room and listen super in-depth. It's going to be in your car or it's going to be at a party or, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so do you think that basis message helps him get out the message he wants to get out? I don't know. I, th- I think your point about it being, like, music you don't look into, I think that can kind of be I- – I don't agree with that fully because, like, I think his, like, his first two albums are both, like, spectacular. And, like, they're, they're very intricate because, like, one of them is about like, – they're basically three, like, this first three are kind of, like, sort of concept albums about, like, kind of growing up. The first one's about dropping out of college. The second one's kind of a, a late, it's called late registration. It's about, it touches on college, too. And the third one's graduation, and it focuses on, it's, like, this overlapping story, like, graduation. It's about, like, the, the kind of things that might go through your mind after graduating, stuff like that. But I think I agree with more recently, his, his albums, I think, have kind of declined in that, in that light. They've become more, like, like he said, like, just car listening, where you don't, like, look into the like look into them that much like in my opinion Yeezus was his 2013 record was like the most of that it was very I think shallow in my opinion and didn't really touch on anything that important I thought so yeah, I agree with you uh, in that sense like obviously like this is a more important topic to him than Yeezus necessarily you know yeah but um but I think that I think maybe his goal was to appeal to all audiences and say here's my story I'm going to say it super simply and some like poetry, you know, like Jesus Christ does the laundry, right? Like he baptizes you, he keeps you clean and stuff like that. Um, so I don't know. In my I, I eyes, see that. I see that. My, yeah. Like obviously it takes away from the music as a whole, but I, it's just, I think that was kind of his goal. I don't think okay. he was worried about the music damage there. Do, do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, I get what you're saying. But out of all the lines I wrote down, that might be my favorite one. But then another one that's kind of silly is closed on Sunday, you might Chick-fil-A. <laughs> you're my number one 
with, with the, the lemonade. lemonade. That's so good. That is gold, Ganon. But then the song <laughs> ends. But then the song ends with someone going like Chick Fil A. Yeah. Fire. But um, no, I think <laughs> again, that's that's obviously a nod at his most recent political um standings and um stuff like that. <laughs> obviously, it's like you're my Chick Fil A, right? Like people love Chick Fil A. He loves God. That's his like connection there. But obviously, it's a nod at Chick Fil A's, you know, conservative views and Kanye saying like. Here, I'm gonna give Chick Fil A a shout out, you know. Um, so obviously <laughs> then, that song's super goofy. Every time yeah. it comes on, I'm like, "What am I listening to?" Absolutely. But, Kanye but yeah. knows so the lemonade strats. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. definitely um, that's definitely one of the shallower songs <laughs> of the album by far. What's your opinion on the line? When I thought the Book of Job was a job, dude, it just what? says that he's grown because he's talking like, "Yo, I used to, I used to not care about God, and I thought, you know." Job, I I just read it at what it was, but really, you know, you got to look into it, and and then you'll find out like, oh, it's Job, not Job. I mean, I I get the whole like the whole point behind it. I just think it's kind of, it's kind of silly. well. I think I think again, uh, I think it's I think it's a uh, kind of Shakespearean pun. If I'm actually gonna be honest, I think. Oh my there's, gosh. There's actually, okay, but like like okay, like the truth is, if I'm rating this album six three six point three, right? But if you really look at some of these lines, there's actually some deep things, right? I think the, the, when I thought the book of Job was a job, right? Absolutely. On the surface level, tons of Christians actually think the name you call the book of Job is Job, right? Yeah. But also think about people like think it's kind of a chore. It's kind of a job to read the Bible and really work on your faith, right? So there's your surface level Christians that he's touching on that are the ones judging him. But then it's the real Christians that he's talking about that actually spend time on on the job of being a Christian, right? It's not just the something job of being a Christian. surface level. You actually have to, you have to learn and think and read and talk and communicate. And I think, I think that's what he touches on. So like with some of these that are just super surface level, I think there's a lot more deeper meanings that if you think about them and like, it seems goofy and I sound like an English teacher, but like the truth is yeah. like when you look deeper, there's really some, some lines in here that are yeah, super but they're also very level, silly. But they're silly. They're silly, right? It catches your eyes, right? The fact that we're talking about these lines is interesting. Think about how many lines in music you don't remember, right? But those three lines that you just said, if you you were like, give me the three silliest lines and Jesus is king, I'd be able to say those three lines. And they all pack pack a significant measure or a significant like message. But if you were to tell me, name my three favorite lines from the glow part two, (laughs) I couldn't tell you a single line in there, you know? So um, I think, I think that, that kind of got his job, got the job done or the job done, if you wanted to say it that way. I, 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 I see that. Go. I see that. <laughs> All right. So final ratings from everybody. I gave it a five out of ten. It's like there's there's parts I like, like, but then overall, I think it's just kind of redundant, kind of surface level. Besides those like those things you went into, I think one of the points. This isn't like my point, but someone said online. I thought it was kind of interesting. How like they they said how like he he basically repeats the same stuff like over and over again. That I think I you kind of start to like lose belief that he actually believes this and he's not just like saying it over and over again just to convince himself. I sort of see that, you know, I don't know. So that, that, that's one of my other sort of issues with it. But overall, yeah, I think five out of 10, I'm really give it. Ashton, you really gave me a change of heart from your whole speech, you know, about Shakespearean puns. I, I get, I bump it up <laughs> a little bit. Five, five now. Oh, okay. Five to a five, five. So 5.5. 5. 5. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm, I'm still thinking the 6.3. I think 
some of that surface level actually kind of sticks out to me and it's like you know like I can listen to this and it sticks with me and I think that's kind of cool if you're like really thinking about it but what it's really missing is like he had such a good opportunity to really blend in the gospel um and like opening opening the album with every hour right it's just a straight gospel song for 45 seconds which was disappointing but I think he he really could have kept that going throughout the whole thing I mean mm-hmm. hitting us with every hour and then Sala or Sala and it it looks like it could like really pan out to be a decent album. And then it, it just drops off the gospel part and like, a lot nah. of the, the cooler parts. So I think it really had an opportunity to tell a story and be a great album. Um, if the lyrics were a little deeper in some of the songs and um, if it just connected. So that's why it's a 6.3 for me. Yeah. So moving on then, what do you, our next, the next album is another Kanye album entitled Kids See Ghosts. Okay. So, well, it's a little background. Kids See Ghosts was dropped in 2018. And it's not actually not just a Kanye album. It's a collaborative effort between Kid Cudi and Kanye West. And they make the uh, group collaborative known as Kids, Kids See Ghosts. And this is basically, 2018 was sort of a, it was a very prolific year for Kanye. But like, so basically he dropped his album, Yay. It was like 20 minutes long. Then he worked on Pusha T, his album, Daytona. It was about 20 minutes long. Then he also like pumped this out. So 2018 was a year of very, I guess, short albums for Kanye. The year of Kanye. The year of Kanye shall be known. But this always, this this album is my favorite. But I first want to get into sort of how I found this album. And it kind of holds a significant like place in my heart, I'll say. Oh, that's sweet, Gannon. The first time I heard it, it was it was like mid-2019. And I stumbled upon, like this was like before, this all, all at this time all I listened to was like Beatles and Queen. And I stumbled upon, <laughs> I stumbled upon Anthony Fantano's 2018, like oh, best album 2018 video. And I, I never heard of the guy, so I just watched it, and like that was like number two on the list. And I saw it had cool cover art, and I was like, "I'll probably just listen to this." Because at that time, I didn't listen to rap music at all. I was just kind of curious because that cool cover art. And then, as I listened to it, I just became kind of enamored with it. I thought it was cool because like it blends so many different genres in rap. Like Kid Cudi sings on it. There's like guitars on it. It's more like psychedelic and has more like out there instrumentals. And it's also an extremely tight. I think 23 minutes. It's not like in this album, it's all killer, no filler, I think. And it's just a very important album to me because without it, if I hadn't listened to that, I wouldn't start listening to rap music and it basically expanded my whole my whole music taste. What do you guys think of this album? This album? It was all right. I liked it when Kanye went, I also liked it when Kanye and all of them went free, super loud. No, I like yeah. I'm I, so I, free. I, I, did, I I definitely agree with you, Gannon. That um, it's a good balance of a ton of different things, and it, it does a good job at that. Um, I don't know. It's just it, it's it's not necessarily like the music I'm I'm super into. Like I see, yeah. Like I can deal with like a little bit of rap, but it's in like that type of like in your face stuff. But again, I'm a ballad guy. You know, ballad. Ballad guy. Yeah, so, um, but yeah, I, I can really expect it for the composition and the, the production of it, and I, th- I thought it was a pretty well done album. Like I said, I liked it. Uh, <laughs> eh, eh. Well, one thing I wanted to go into was, so I think this is before, like, I, I'm, not, I'm not too big on Jesus King, we just talked about that, but I think this is a better, a better religious slash gospel album than Jesus King, because I think I, I noticed listen to like my, my like fifth watt fifth listen and i i've like listened to this like 10 times i think but like it is like every single song has like many references to like their their faith and like god 
like in the first song when, when Kid Cudi shouts, I can still feel the love. I think that that's more like a, a cry to like ask, to like refer to define, to divine love. In fire, the line, it's so many days I prayed to God. On this road, I find these scars left behind, heaven lift me up. In the song, Fourth Dimension, I really hope the Lord would hear me. We all live in sin. In the song, Free, he lifted me up every time that I fell and set me free. In the song, Reborn, the whole thing's kind of like a hymn about saying that they've, they've both been like reborn. And then on, on Kids See Ghosts, Cuddy says, sitting by myself, find in heaven soon, I can hear the angels coming. And then on the Cuddy montage, there's tons of like, save me, Lord, shine your light on me. And I think this is what I was kind of missing on Jesus King, because like in this album, it's like, my first couple of listens, I never even noticed like this whole prevailing trend of all of it. And I was more sucked into the music. But then as I keep listening to it, I notice all this stuff. Whereas Jesus is King, it's made blatantly clear in like, like the first 10 seconds or like this the album name that the whole album's about this. And I just thought it, yeah. was, more subtle, it was more subtle and well done on Kitsy Ghosts. Yeah, I, I, def- I definitely say it was more subtle. But again, I just don't think that's the, the goal of of mm-hmm. Jesus is King, you know, um, when you, mm-hmm. when you look at kids, sees, sees ghosts. Um, this is, this is a time when Kanye's really struggling with his public persona, definitely, but also his like um, religious persona. And I mean, he talks about it a little bit in Jesus is King and he, he just wasn't fine. He was just wasn't being accepted by the Christian community. Right. Like how does this rapper, right. This crazy rapper, this super popular rapper. Why does he actually want to devote his life to Christianity? And you know, like Christians, mm-hmm not good at welcoming people in but um no so i i do agree with the subtleties and i think that's just kind of where he was at his point in life you know like he wants to let people know about jesus but then jesus as king came along and he's like this is my prophecy this is what i want to tell you guys and it's going to be right on the face so you guys know for sure um, mm-hmm. and that kind okay. of stuff and then and then you go to his album after that with his sunday service choir of jesus is born which is just you know strictly gospel Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so I, I, it's definitely it's definitely a unique transformation that he's had as as an artist, and I think uh-huh. I think when you look at the two, it it kind of follows his journey pretty much perfectly. Mm-hmm. You know, so just some other stuff like about the album. I thought for I think this is for me it was a good like hip hop album to start off with because like it's very eclectic and it's like use of like I guess styles and genres. Like it has hip hop, but it's also it's also got like some like R&B and soul aspects. It's got like guitars on it. It has some like extremely, it's got some very, very interesting samples. Like one of the samples on Fourth Dimension is like this old Christmas song, like the 1930s. That was very interesting. It like it took, the first time I listened, it totally caught me by surprise, but I, I started to warm up, warm up to it a bit. And yeah, just overall, I think it's, it's very unlike a lot of things I've heard just music wise. And I, I, I love it. I don't know. Like I said, I just, to me, it was just sort of like, it was better than um, Jesus is King for sure. But I was just like, it's just sort of Kanye, you know, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't gel with it as much as I, I think you did again. And it might be just that I've only listened to it the one time, mm-hmm. but I just, um, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't connect with it as much as I think some people have. Okay. Yeah. I, I got two listens of it and, I definitely feel like it grows on you the more you listen to it. And yeah, I'm sure it does. Pick up more stuff as you listen to mm-hmm. it. So, what do you guys think for ratings on that one? Nine out of ten. Yeah, nine out of ten. Uh, seven. Eh, yeah, seven point two. Seven point three. Six point okay. nine. 
I see, I see. <laughs> no, I just I think it's like all, like seven is like a good score for me, and I think it's almost there. Um, I need if like I'm sure if I listen to it one or two more times, it bump up into that seven point one range. Um, okay, okay. Yeah. See one, it one. It's one thing for me. It's like this album. I I I think it's like the most I've listened to any album like ever. Like I've heard, like I said like ten times. It's like it's so short where you can like go back and like it doesn't take a lot. It's not it's not a big time commitment. So I think yeah. for me like. I, I can just like fill it in like any like anytime I have extra time I can just pop it on and it's just a nice little 20 minutes well spent yeah I think that really gets into you know the what is a good album length discussion um, mm-hmm. and obviously that can be for another time but yeah. there are pros to a 20 minute album if you can do it a 20 minute album yeah you know it's kind of like oh what's that like is it a Mark Twain quote where it's like if I had more time I would have written less I don't know. <laughs> that sounds like something he would say. Yeah, um, I, I, I just, I just know Mr. Fish always talks about it, um, mm-hmm. but I think that's really true for all artists, not just authors. Um, they want to get all their good stuff in as little bit as possible. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. All right, Gannon. I think it's time for the um, okay. movie minute. Movie minute. Okay, so today, and I'm kind of cheating. We're we're doing a, a double movie minute. But I'm gonna talk about both about half as long. Hey, hey, listen, this is kind of thematic because like a couple a while ago, I read that Kanye West's his two favorite movies of all time. He can't rank them. Are there will be there will be blood and Akira. So I decided to talk about both those because I love both those movies. First off, there will be blood, released in 2007 by Paul Thomas Anderson. It's the story of an oil prospector, Daniel Plainview. It follows him as he goes from just like a normal oil prospector to like this huge oil tycoon. And it follows as his mental state slowly, slowly deteriorates. And it's just, it's, ama- it's an amazing character study. It's got a fantastic score by Johnny Greenwood, who is the guitarist of Radiohead. He's a pretty good guitar player. And he composed a lot of film scores. And overall, it's just like, it's like a perfect movie. There's like nothing wrong with it. It's like two hours and 30 minutes long and it flies by in like a second. And it's on Netflix. So you should probably watch it if you have Netflix. And the second movie, Akira, is an animated movie from Japan, 1988. And it, it, it is considered anime, but like if you have this this like prejudice against that, it's nothing like that. It's far removed from that. But it's basically about how in 1988 the Japanese government dropped an atomic bomb on Tokyo after some ESP experiments go awry, and then it takes place in 2019 when it's like this dystopian version of Tokyo called Neo Tokyo, and it's kind of ruled by like street gangs and stuff like that. And a, a, a member of the street gang, Kanida tries to save his friend Tetsuo, who's kind of kidnapped by a secret government project. And I think overall, it's like, in my opinion, it's one of my favorite anime movies of all time because first off, the animation is absolutely spectacular. And second, I think I love how it, it handles the, the dystopian sort of society. Like normally in this movie, it'd be like super like glitzy and glamorous, like Neo Tokyo, but it really dives into the sort of like how this might actually look. It's like, it's very grimy. It's very dirty. It's very realistic. I like, I appreciate that about it. And yeah, it's an awesome movie. It's got some great action. It's got a bit for everyone. Check it out. Might have to. Uh, might have to start calling this the movie two minute. Yeah, probably. Yeah, Dan, this is not. That was not. That was not very short. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm no, it was good though. Good. Good. Good yeah. analysis, Gannon. Thank you. Do you guys have anything else to say about our two albums? I don't think so. It's Kanye. All right. With with that, we can um get into our next special guest he's a graduate a 99 graduate 1999 
um, from the high school that we attend. Um, he was my dad's little in the Big Brother Big Sisters program, and he was one of my dad's groom groomsmen. So we have pretty good Whoa. family connections there. But currently, he's a uh, doctorate in bassoon performance at the University of Wisconsin Eau Claire. So um, hmm. here, Dr. Trent Jacobs. We're here with our uh, special guest, uh, Dr. Trent Jacobs. He actually attended the same high school that the three of us go to, and now is a uh, bassoon performance professor. So. Uh, Trent, would you care to introduce yourself and kind of what you do? Sure. So um, I teach bassoon and music theory at University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. And um, as kind of a, it, it's, it's a not a full-time professorship. So um, I have to supplement my income with freelance work. Um, and uh, one of the things that you need to do as a bassoonist is um, you, you have to either learn how to create your own reads or you need to um, buy reads from somebody who makes good ones uh, because they're, they're a fairly detailed kind of thing to have to create. And so, um, you know, people say, oh, do you make your own reads for the bassoon? And I actually say, well, I'm the one who makes the reads for the people who don't make their own reads for the bassoon. So, um, yeah, I make a, or somewhere around 1,200 reads a year um, that I sell to customers, mostly in the United States, a few Canada, um, and I have one other thing that I do, which is just a kind of like a side thing, but it's gained me a lot of notoriety in the bassoon community. And that's that I invented a pickup that you can put on the bassoon that allows you to tap the bassoon into, uh, like electric guitar pedals and amplifiers and stuff. So it's kind of opened up a wide range of new kinds of performance opportunities for bassoonists. I've, uh, there's probably somewhere around 500 or so of those things floating out there in the wild. And I see uh, every once in a while I get surprised to find out somebody in like Iceland plays the electric bassoon in a band and they're using the pickup that I made. Uh, Cause I sell those to a retailer and then the retailer sells them outside. So I have a, an idea of who are, who has a few of them, but most of them get sold and I have no idea who the end user is. So, um, so yeah, I mean, you got to have a few different kinds of side hustles, but um, you know, the, the, some of the things that I did before I actually got my teaching job, I worked for um, a music store that specializes in woodwind instruments, and I worked there for close to six years, um, and that was kind of a, that was my first like full-time job that I got after I completely got out of school. Uh, I was in school, you know, I did my undergraduate and then I went to grad school and I was all the way done with my coursework for my doctorate before I really had to get a real job as it were. And uh, so I, I got lucky and got a job that's pretty closely tied to a lot of people in my industry and I got to know a lot of people. I got to network really well through that and uh, I probably wouldn't have gotten my university job if I hadn't been in that position because the some you know one one very important person on the hiring committee kind of knew me already through that work and so while hiring committees aren't supposed to take those sorts of things under consideration officially you can't completely rule out some sort of personal knowledge or bias when you're when you're hiring someone for for a position that you're going to be working with someone in you know close contact so um so that's what I do now and kind of the most recent things that I did uh, before that, but uh, yeah. Awesome. So when and why did you settle on music as a career path? So when I was in high school, 
somewhere around like my junior year, I kind of felt like that was the, the direction that I was going with everything. Um, you know, I, I didn't really have any interests that were more profound to me. Um, you know, I wasn't terribly good at, at like the hard sciences like math or chemistry or anything like that. So, uh, you know, going into something that was like an engineering type field didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me. Um, so I was definitely kind of more in the humanities part of kind of the what I was doing for learning. And you know, I was kind of known as being like a Mr. Music kind of guy in the school and at church and that sort of thing. Um, so it, that's just seemed to be the direction that I wanted to go. Um, so then, you know, somewhere around my, you know, early, late junior year of high school, I was turned on to the school that I eventually went to for undergrad. And the, the choice actually for me wasn't so much, am I going to go into music by that point, but it was actually, what will my specialty be? Because when I was in high school, I was doing a lot of different things. I was playing guitar and bass in the jazz band, singing in the, you know, in all the choirs and the church choir. And I was taking private voice lessons, which is actually my, my voice teacher was the one that I knew that um, uh, turned me on to the school I ultimately went to because he was a graduate from of Lawrence University. So I was actually my voice teacher that got me connected to the school of all things. Um, and, uh, and I was playing bassoon in the band. And so, I mean, I was doing lots of things. And I was, you know, I was actually a very good guitar player for somebody who might be going into academia for, for guitar, like to actually study it formally, not just play in a rock band. Um, because I had knowledge of reading music and things like that. Um, I felt like singing was probably my weakest thing. And I also felt like there were too many singers that were going to be way better than me. So that seemed like a real uphill battle. Um, but, uh, and guitar playing was also kind of the same thing. Like, you know, how many people actually make a living for guitar because they, you know, went to school for it. it you know, it's kind of an unusual thing. Most of the people who actually make a good living with guitar, just, you know, they play in the rock band or whatever. So, so I kind of played the odds a little bit and, and decided to spend my focus on the bassoon because I figured there aren't as many bassoon players out there. Um, I was quite naive uh, <laughs> with that assumption. I mean, there certainly are more good guitar players out there than good bassoon players, and likewise for singers, I think. So in, in a way, it was, it's true, but there are still, I had no real idea of how saturated the music industry was. Um, but, uh, but I did decide to, to go to school for music, and it, at that time, it was kind of, this is the only thing that I really want to do, and I figured I, I wanted to go to a good school that I could get kind of a, a, um, you know, a degree from that would have some sort of weight to it. So I didn't want to go to a school that had, um, that didn't have a real strong reputation um, and actually paid a little more to go to a school that had a better reputation compared to a school that, uh, you know, I got a, a much better financial aid package from, but wasn't going to be a school that I was going to feel super proud of having a degree from. Um, so, when I got to, to college, you know, I, I, it definitely clicked, you know, that I realized like, wow, I actually, I actually am good enough at this. I might actually be able to make a living at it. And, um, and I kind of found the direction that I wanted to go with it too. Like I definitely felt like I was not going to be the right kind of player to win a job at a full-time orchestra. 
um, you know, once I, especially once I started to learn about what the, what the industry is really like, and in terms of like how you get a job as a performing person in like a full-time group, um, that's really, really like, it's incredibly rare to actually get a, a job like that. And, but what I did find is that I, I liked the idea of a college experience so much. So by the time I was midway through college, I really had decided that what I wanted to do was teach at the collegiate level. I wasn't really so interested in my main source of musical outlet as being like the full-time performing career, but I really wanted to fall into that kind of, you know, working closely with a handful of colleagues, which is what I saw happening with the, the faculty at the university there and interacting with students and, and being a part of a, a small tight-knit community. And what I have learned from taking, from doing a few professional gigs when I was an undergrad is that people, if you have a symphony job, that's your day job. And while you form good relationships with your colleagues, as, as you should with any, any position, people, they go to rehearsal, they rehearse, and then they pack up and they go home, and then they do their other things. And I wanted more of a kind of a community feeling than that. So um, that's where I felt like I need that. That's where the direction that I wanted to head was. So, you know, it slowly evolved. You know, it wasn't like when I was in eighth grade, I knew that like I was going to be a professional musician. That's, um, you know, it was an evolving thing where I kind of found what I wanted to do. Um, and so because I wanted to teach at the collegiate level, the kind of one of the prerequisites for that is at least getting a master's degree if not getting a, a terminal degree, either a, a PhD if you're a musicologist or something, or in the case of a performer, um, a doctorate of musical arts is what the degree title actually is. So that's where I, I just continued staying in school and um, to get the degrees so that I had at least the paper qualifications and did as much freelancing as I could and whatever. So that that was like the thing that I that I knew to do to set up. So. What sort of successes and failures have you encountered as a musician? Well, so um, let, let me talk about a failure first that leads to a success. So we'll go in that order. Okay. Um, so actually the, the position that I have right now at UW Eau Claire, I applied for twice. And the first time I didn't get the job. Um, so they, I had been working at the, at this, the, the, the music shop, Midwest Musical Imports was that specialty shop that I was talking about. I've been working there for about four years when I heard this, this position come up and I knew it was just gonna be like probably one day a week kind of thing. Like go out to Eau Claire, which is a hundred miles away and teach some bassoon lessons and then come back and then that was gonna be it. But it was gonna be like the first time that I could really step into academia as a, not a student. So, you know, I applied for it and part of the application process is, you, you know, you submit your curriculum vitae and you have to submit your transcripts and you, um, uh, and as part of a, a search for a musical job like this is that you, um, you have to submit some recordings and you want those recordings to be representative of what you do and of your personality and who you are, but you also want those recordings to kind of represent that like you can teach the core repertoire for your instrument and that you can perform things that, you know, everybody expects of you and on your instrument to play. So, you know, you want to hear, if you're a bassoonist, you want to hear somebody playing the Mozart concerto or the Weber concerto or one of the Vivaldi pieces or something. And you don't necessarily want to hear like nothing but weird experimental music. 
because the students at the university, while some of them will want to play, and while you should encourage new music and do weird experimental stuff, but if the only thing that the committee ever hears you do is weird experimental music and they don't know that you can play Telemann, then they're not gonna, they're not gonna hire you. Because um, that's what you're gonna be teaching you know, 20 year olds. You're not gonna be teaching 20 year olds the weird wacky stuff. They still have to figure out how to play the, the, the standard core repertoire. Um, so I had some recordings, but I hadn't performed a recital since I was a grad student. So I had like some standard rep stuff that was about four or five years old that I had good good performances of. But you know, I was uh, I was still a student at the time, and um, I was proud of the recordings. I still am. But um, the more recent stuff that I'd done had been with um, like a progressive rock group. So I was playing electric bassoon with a progressive rock thing. And I had done some multi-track recordings where I had made my own bassoon quartet, you know, four Trent Jacobses all playing the part, you know, which is super popular now, but you know, nine years ago, this wasn't the thing that all that many people were doing. So I thought it was, I thought it was novel. Um, and you know, I, and I didn't get the job, they didn't hire me. And I knew the person who they did hire who was not as qualified as me officially like he he was still in his doctoral program and uh he had some experience i think he had taught high school for a couple of years or something and he was going back to get a higher degree so you know he didn't have the terminal degree and he had like two years of teaching experience but he was basically my age and and i really didn't get it I, I, when I look at my, looked at my qualifications versus that person's qualifications, I was really confused why that person was hired over me actually. Um, Cause I had other professional experience beyond, you know, just the, the, the uh, little bit of performing that I've been doing. So when it was appropriate, I talked to the oboe professor at that school, I think, is this it? And I kind of asked what 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 was the thing that made it so that it was that I wasn't the standout candidate. You know, I wanted feedback so that if the next time a job like this shows up, what could I do to better my chances of getting hired? So the failure was not really knowing how to apply for something like this. You know, I spent most of my life in academia. I'd only been out of it for a few years, but no one had really ever showed me what it was going to take to to get an academic job. I kind of knew what I needed to do if I were gonna try to get a symphony job, like winning an audition. And I didn't want to develop that, that skill set. It's just not the thing that I wanted to do, spending six hours a day practicing orchestral excerpts. Um, but, you know, I asked the person and I got feedback. And the number one thing was that I didn't have recent enough recordings that were representative that they wanted. Like everything else seemed good on paper, but they didn't, they weren't convinced of my playing because what I submitted wasn't satisfactory to them. So the next year, I kind of crowdsourced it a little bit and put on a recital, a very formal recital. It kind of made it a ticketed event and everything and made sure that I had a recording technician that was set up with some really good microphones. And I had, did, a, did like a recording project along with it so that I had a really good recording. So I was like, okay, well now I've got something that's new. Um, that is a really quality audio and visual performance and that has kind of everything that I need. And then, um, and I was really proud of it. I, and I'm, I'm still very proud of it. I think that was a really fantastic recital. Um, 
and it was good repertoire. I had, I was even part of a commissioning project. I was one of the first people in the world to play one of the pieces on this program. I think I was the second person uh, to play one of the pieces on the program. The first was actually one, my, pre, my previous teacher, um, who was one of the two co-commissioners uh, for the project. Um, and then the year after that, the job that I had not won opened up again. Um, because the person who got the, the job before, his wife got a job somewhere in Ohio or something like that, and that was, the, and they, they were moving. So I reapplied for the job, and then that time I had that recent recording. And nothing else changed on my CV, really, um, but I had this new recording, and I had a better idea of what it took to, like, you know, impress the people on the committee and whatever. And so then, and then that's when I got the that's when I got the job. So the failure really, you know, was, was a learning experience. And I got lucky that I was able to reapply for the same position and could impress whoever I needed to impress more. Uh, and I, so by fixing that problem. So that was, um, that is kind of the most recent thing that I can say, like really in terms of my career, like what did I not do right? And then what did I do to fix that and do it right and make that a success? Yeah, I think I was actually at the, that recital, wasn't I? I'm, I'm, Do you positive. Remember? I'm positive you were. Yeah, at the yeah, because I, I I definitely recall that recital because that was that was a moment for me where I was like, you know, I really actually want to like get good at my instrument. Uh, just <laughs> just seeing you play that recital, so that was cool little interjection there. Just um, oh, that's that good. Recital, so. I, I'm I'm glad that it was inspiring. That's great. Also, I've have, I have a quick interjection about Lawrence, my teacher actually. Um, got her degrees at Lawrence as well. Did you just, like, if, if, you were, if you were a high school student looking for a college program for music, what would you say you should look for? Well, the number one thing that you need to look for when you're studying any sort of music program is your relationship with the private teacher. Because that is, that's the person that you're, that's going to be mentoring you and that's going to be like setting your path. And if you can't learn from that person because you don't have a good personality, you know, jive with them or because they play or sound or want you to play or sound in a certain way that's totally the opposite of what feels right for you, then you're, you're going to have a real hard time regardless of what is happening at the school. Like you can love the, the campus and you can love the program and it can have a great name and it can, you might've gotten a good scholarship, but if that teacher isn't getting you to progress in a way that's efficient, you know, cause you, you know, if you have four years with somebody, you know, you do have a lot to cover in what, you know, four years is in, you know, it might sound like a long time, uh, but, you know, as somebody who's on the other side of the teaching chair, like it's amazing how I'm looking at some of my people who are, who are just leaving their sophomore year right now and I'm going, oh my gosh, I have so much to do with these people and I only have two years left with them. Uh, so, you know, if you have a good working relationship with the teacher, then, then a lot of other things click into place because it's ultimately about how well, you, how well you end up performing. And Secondary to that, I think, is the strength of the program overall and kind of the, the, um, the reputation of the program. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to trash talk any school, but, you know, that if you have a candidate for a position that has on their, 
resume or their curriculum vitae, um, Minnesota State St. Cloud or whatever it is, St. Cloud State University, that's it, St. Cloud State University, and somebody else who went to Oberlin College. The reputation of the program tells you a lot about the person who went to Oberlin versus the person who went to St. Cloud State. Because I guarantee that somebody in Brooklyn has never heard of St. Cloud State University, but everybody in the music world knows about Oberlin. So there, but at the same time, like, you know, if, if it's a screened audition and, you, and it doesn't really matter where you went for school, then if you learned a whole lot from your teacher at middle of nowhere university, and you practiced your tail off, then you know you can win gigs um, because nobody's looking at your resume after you get behind the screen. But there are some positions that you know if you that you're applying for, even performing only jobs, that the first thing that they're going to do is want to look at resumes. And if you're not, if they don't think you're qualified enough on paper, they don't want to bother listening to you. Um, so you might send a resume in for an audition, and they might say, "Don't even bother showing up." Uh, because you only have an undergraduate degree from this little tiny school that we've never heard of. And there are 400 people who are applying for this job. So we can't listen to all of them. So, um, so I think it, that's kind of the, but those are the most important order. It's the private teacher. And then the next thing is about the strength of the program and, um, and the reputation of the school. And then at that point, it becomes how much are you willing to sacrifice financially, distance away from your family, all of that sort of thing. But that, that's a balanced thing that everybody has to work out when they're going to any school for any program. So what is the hardest thing you've had to overcome in terms of music or anything? Well, I mean, I, I'm a, I can get really personal about this. Um, as, as Ashton knows, and maybe he's told the, the rest of you, um, three years ago, almost, I, I mean, we're, we're actually probably close to the day that I was diagnosed with cancer. And so I, you know, I, I went, I, I had just gotten notification that I was going to play at a conference, um, a piece that I had commissioned a friend of mine to write for me. Um, I was going to play it at my alma mater. It was like everything, like the world was coming together. I was going to have my second kid. And, um, you know, I had been teaching at the school for, uh, for a couple of years and, and things were really starting to look good. And then all of a sudden I get this cancer diagnosis. And so I kind of had to put everything on hold for the summer because I, I was diagnosed in May and started chemotherapy in June. And, you know, I had no idea how I would react to the, to the treatment. So, and I didn't know what the timing was. So I called off a number of things that I was planning on doing that summer. I was going to be teaching at a, at a, at a camp uh, and I was going to be performing at that conference. And then I, I wasn't sure even like what my fall was going to look like going back to teaching. So, you know, that the, the, the challenge there kind of looking at like not knowing what my future was going to hold, you know, just because of this, this health thing that no one could have predicted, um, you, know, you know, a really unusual type of cancer for someone in their mid thirties to get. Um, so, and then I had to have major surgery, it turned out as a part of the treatment that, um, you know, I, I think I played my bassoon in October and um, on November 2nd or 3rd, whatever the date was that I had my surgery, um, you, I, I went into recovery and did not touch my bassoon again until the following March. 
Um, so, I mean, a full half a year where, actually I sent the bassoon to Germany. I, I, <laughs> I sent it back to the guy who made it to do some key, to do some modifications to the instrument because I knew I wasn't going to be able to do anything with it. Um, so, you know, so the, the, the challenge and the hurdle then, you know, of like coming back to playing after having major, major surgery with a very difficult recovery and, um, and drugs and that, you know, trying to kill the rest of the cancer, which, you know, I'm, I'm, it, it ended up being that the surgery did not get everything and I'm still in treatment, but at least now I have enough experience that I kind of know how to manage things and um, how to keep doing what I'm doing despite the, 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 the therapies. But, um, you know, the, the recovery after that, you know, to like figure out how to play again and, and how to breathe right again, because I'd had so much of my abdominal muscles, like just pull, op opened wide up. Um, that, that was a challenge and I didn't feel terribly comfortable playing publicly for a while. Um, so it was, um, you know, it was probably the next fall, uh, when I played with, um, the faculty group. So a year after my surgery, before I really felt good enough to play, like to perform again. Um, so, I mean, that was a real hurdle and you know, I'm, I'm kind of fighting an on and off battle now because I have good weeks and bad weeks depending on when I'm getting treatment. But um, at least now I have a better idea of, you know, how to manage that and how to continue to work and, and play my instrument while I'm, while I'm going through treatment. So, um, you know, I think that's, that's the most personal and gigantic hurdle that I'm still going through. Um, but, uh, you know, because school, honestly, I mean, wasn't really that hard for me. I, you know, I was, I'm really good academically. Um, so, you know, for me, school wasn't such a challenge. Um, and, you know, financially, it was, it was hard. But, um, you know, we figured it out. And eventually, we paid off our credit cards <laughs> after grad school. <laughs> if, you can, if you can avoid living off of your credit cards when you're in school, avoid living off credit cards when you're in school. But, I mean... And you got to eat and you got to pay rent. But if you could uh, start all over again, would you still choose music? So, you know, hindsight's a 2020 thing. And it, it's obviously worked out for me well enough that, you know, I'm making, a, I'm making a fairly good lower middle class living doing it. Um, so, you know, knowing what I know now, I could go back and do it better. Um, but I think that's the case for anybody, regardless of what they go into. Um, so, you know, I happen to get lucky in a lot of ways. You know, most of the people who go into music end up not getting music careers. Um, and, you know, a lot of, I know a lot of, most of my college colleagues um, that were at this, you know, at the same institution and getting the same degree as me, um, you know, don't, don't perform beyond like their community orchestra you know they have there's just fantastic violin players you know that if i you know if i needed to put together like a stellar ensemble i know these people that i could pull in from you know they're kind of scattered across the country now but you know i know that they would be amazing musicians um but you know they you know they have like a little work from home business or something that they do and they raise two kids at home while their spouse is the main breadwinner you know doing whatever their spouse does uh so you know that's that's a really common story for musicians is the you know the 
like I said, you have 400 people applying for one performing position and, you know, only one of them is going to get the job. So that means that 399 people didn't get the job and keep doing whatever it was that they were doing before that audition. So, um, you know, I got lucky. So of course it's easy for me to say, yeah, I'd do it again. Um, even though there were some hard financial times in there, but you know, it's, it's ended up working out. Um, now would I recommend it to everybody? Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, the biggest thing is you should, you gotta have a backup plan because most people aren't going to make it in the music world. And I, you know, like, have I made it, you know, I, I have a 55% uh, contract at, um, you know, a, a fairly decently sized state school. Um, you know, it, I should pull out my contract. Maybe if, if we have to rejoin the zoom meeting here, I'll dig my most recent contract out of here and I'll just tell you how much I make uh, in the university professor job. It's, it's really not that much um, considering how much I've invested in myself for it, you know, so it's, you know, you've got to be able to do lots of things, um, even if you're really, really good at what you do, um, if you're going into a career, if you're going into a creative field. Do you have any advice for future musicians, if they're really thinking about it? Here we go. I think here's the contract. <laughs> you will be paid the sum of $10,796.63 as compensation for your 63% assignment for the 2019 fall semester. And you will be paid a sum of $9,939.75 as compensation for your 58% assignment for the 2020 spring semester. So for the whole school year, pre this, this, no, this is like the total. This is not before things like my healthcare goes through and all of that um, was just about twenty thousand dollars that's that's adjunct faculty that's 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 what that's what adjunct faculty means when you look at that that percentage means that i'm teaching so many credits in a semester mm -hmm. um okay so your question was what advice <laughs> to give to people young people going into music um everybody sounds better through practice room door Okay, so, and, and, the, the, and I say it that way because it's really easy to compare yourself to other people. And ultimately that's what we're doing when we are applying for jobs or auditioning for, for a performing position or when we're at a jam, you know, we're just like, you know, we show up to an open mic. Um, hold on, I gotta lock my door or you're gonna be interrupted by some children. <laughs> Now it'll just be banging on the door. Um, so, you, you know, you, we're, we're always competing with other people for, you know, the one spot in the band or whatever. Um, but you're, the ultimate competition is against what you were yesterday. So, you know, you always want to be looking at what you're doing musically that makes you a better musician than you were the day before. And sometimes that's taking a day off. Sometimes it's doing nothing but wood shedding scales and arpeggios. Sometimes it's working on the chord changes to, I don't know, body and soul or something simple like, you know, whatever. Uh, 
but you know, it's, it's a different thing for different people and you know, whatever you're doing, but you always want to be improving yourself because that's the only real way that you can compete is against yourself. You can't control how much somebody else is practicing. You can only control what you're doing. So, you know, always try to be a better version of yourself than you were yesterday. And I mean, you can apply that to any part of life, right? But it's especially true with, with a creative performing field. Um, the other thing is have a wide range of skills. Um, you know, if you can be a sound technician, sound techs can get good gigs making decent money and you don't really have to practice for it. So it's something you can just show up to the show and if you know how to do your thing and you do it well and you make this, the band sound good, then you get asked to come back and do sound at that, at that venue again. Um, so I know a lot of guys who are like, you know, he's a great drummer or he's a really great guitar player, but he's also a really good sound tech, live sound tech. So it's a, the idea of like diversifying your skill set within the field, you know, and if you can, if you can play bass and you can play guitar and you can do both well and you don't look like a guitar player playing bass, then you can, you know, then you can fill in for somebody or you can, you know, uh, uh, you know, try to get a, a gig playing either one of those instruments. Um, if you're a woodwind player, you know, if you can play saxophone and clarinet and flute, all of a sudden you can play books and musicals that you can't play if all you play is saxophone. Uh, which is, that's something I can't do. You know, I play the bassoon. You put a flute in front of me and I know how to play a C major scale, maybe two octaves. Uh, <laughs> but, but that's about it. Um, but, you know, a lot of musicals require somebody to be able to play oboe and flute and bass clarinet and tenor saxophone all in the same show. So if you have that diverse set of skills that somebody else doesn't necessarily have, then, um, you know, whether it's different performing things or, or being a recording technician or having good business sense so that you can do things like, you know, sell bassoon reads or, uh, or whatever, you know, so have that, that side hustle is really important because so few musicians can actually make a complete living off of just performing or just, or even just teaching. I mean, sometimes depending on your market, where you live, you might not be able to just teach and make enough. There are places in the country where you can, but that's, but you have to be willing to live in Houston, Texas, you know. Just uh, one thing to quick wrap it up in our last uh, minute and a half here. How has social isolation affected you as a musician? So I mean, had a lot of, all my gigs were canceled, right? So I have no live performing opportunities at all for the foreseeable future. And some of those that I was looking forward to in the fall might not happen either. So I was lucky I gave a recital in February. Uh, <laughs> so if it had been planned for late March, you know, nothing, but um, we're, you know, we're coming up with it. We're, I'm going to be doing a live YouTube live streamed recital with other faculty members on Thursday. So, you know, I'm performing in my living room for people. So evolving. Awesome. Definitely. Yep. Thank you so much for uh, coming on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Good night guys. See ya. Awesome. See ya. Thank you. All right, thank you everybody for listening and huge thank you to Dr. Trent Jacobs for coming on and talking to us. It was a real pleasure getting to have that conversation. Yeah, super unique guy and that was, um, that was a really cool experience just to kind of hear his story and his unique journey um, down the music path. Definitely. So yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for listening. Make sure to tune in to the next episode where we'll discuss the album You Won't Get What You Want by The Daughters. So you want maybe go listen to that so you can be prepared to listen to our discussion 
next next and time. We, episode. And we also have a great guest next time, and Ethan Whitekin. Um, he was in the Blue Coats, and now he is a middle school uh, band and orchestra teacher um, in Minnesota. So that'll be a super cool discussion. So mm-hmm. thank you guys so much for tuning in, and uh, this has been Music Happy Hour. <laughs>